0: A good place to start. I often get misidentified as a neurosurgeon, ironically. (laughs) Yeah, what happened was that when podcasting emerged in iTunes in 2005, the first time I heard a podcast, I was like, wow, that's cool, I really want to do it, but I didn't know what I wanted to do it about. Didn't want to make a medical podcast because that'd be too much like my day job. And so it took me a while, but it just happened to be that uh, what
1: I- Welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. This is the podcast designed to help you lead your life enthusiastically today, tomorrow, and every other day. I am your host, Ron Kaiser, positive health psychologist, also keynote and TEDx speaker and author of Rejuvenating, the Art and Science of Growing Older with Enthusiasm. As listeners of the podcast know, my hope is to always bring interesting, informative guests who lead their own lives enthusiastically and have different ways of helping us to become increasingly better versions of ourselves. And we're particularly fortunate today to have such a guest with us dealing with a topic that we don't always talk about here and not necessarily in the context in which we'll learn about today. Dr. Ginger Campbell is a physician, author, and science communicator. She's the author of the book, Are You Sure? The Unconscious Origins of Certainty. And she is a member of the podcast, Hall of Fame. Dr. Campbell, in fact, has three podcasts and kind of her major one, Brain Science, is was launched in 2006 and it features on a monthly basis ideas that are shared from the works of various scientists whom she interviews dr campbell spent over 20 years as an emergency physician in rural alabama in 2014 she went back to the university of alabama in birmingham where she completed a fellowship in palliative medicine. She now practiced palliative medicine at the Veterans Administration Medical Center in Birmingham, where she enjoys both patient care and teaching residents, fellows, and medical students. Dr. Campbell enjoys sharing her passion for science and especially neuroscience. Her goal is to make these topics accessible to people from more all backgrounds, and both her books and her podcasts and other information that we'll learn about, she makes it very accessible for those of us who have interests in how the brain works and what we can do about it. So without any further ado, Dr. Campbell, welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. It's such a pleasure to have you with us.
0: Hi, Ron. It's great to be here.
1: Great. So let's get into this. Now, I mentioned that you're an emergency room physician. You are involved in palliative care. Not, I didn't mention that you're a neurologist, a neurosurgeon. How did you happen to get so interested in the brain?
0: Uh, good place to start. I often get misidentified as a neurosurgeon, ironically. (laughs) Yeah, what happened was that when podcasting emerged in iTunes in 2005, the first time I heard a podcast, I was like, wow, that's cool. I really want to do it, but I didn't know what I wanted to do it about. Didn't want to make a medical podcast because that'd be too much like my day job. And so it took me a while, but it just happened to be that uh, what I, what I, my personal subject that I was passionate about at that time was neuroscience. I got interested in it around 2003 as an outgrowth of my late life interest in Western philosophy. I discovered there was a branch of philosophy called philosophy of mind. And through that, I learned that neuroscience is now able to explore questions like consciousness which 30 years ago were considered inaccessible to science. And so that was really where I started from, was an interest in consciousness and the relationship between consciousness and the brain. And then what happened was I was reading, reading, and back in the early days of podcasting before Facebook and Twitter, Mm -hmm. a lot of podcasts had discussion forums. And I was on someone else's discussion forum, a show called The Sci-Fi Zone, which was an Australian podcast about the intersection of science fiction and philosophy, ironically. And the there was people were always talking about the brain and everything they wrote was wrong. And I would be writing. But if you just read X, you would know that it's really this way. So finally, the guy says, why don't you do a book review for me on my show? And he wanted it to be 10 minutes long. If you've ever listened to my show, you know that it's not 10 minutes long, except for the episode number two, <laughs> which is from that interview and uh, that book review that I did for him, which was about the book On Intelligence by Jeff Hawkins, which was a bestseller back in around 2006, I think. But at any rate, that I did that one little thing, and as a podcaster, the there's this certain adrenaline thing that comes from doing podcasting and I recorded this and I was like this is it and I realized if I did a show about the brain and mind you this is 2006 neuroscience wasn't as hot as it is now but I realized if I did a show about neuroscience I would never run out of material and I haven't yeah Yes. So that, that's the story. So, yeah, it's just out of a personal interest in the subject. And that's the reason why my show is really aimed at sharing these ideas with non-scientists, because as mainstream media coverage of science in general sucks, just to be really blunt. Right. And the coverage of neuroscience is equally bad. And I really feel like having some basic knowledge of neuroscience is important in the 21st century, if for no other reason to protect you from quacks.
1: It's quite enlightening to hear your podcast, read your book, because those of us who have some knowledge of the brain might expect certain things that about physiology, the neuroscience, so on, talk about synapses and things of that nature. And you've got, number one, you've got a kind of a different spin on it, but probably even more important, there's some ideas that you bring out that I haven't heard from anybody else. And the brain is such a valuable thing I want to get it right. So maybe it can give us a little bit of a picture of your overall philosophy and approach to the brain.
0: Okay. So first of all, the way that I choose my material is that for the most part, I interview scientists, very mainstream scientists, even though their ideas may be unfamiliar to most people, they are not fringe, this hasn't been proven yet types. But their ideas haven't made it necessarily into the mainstream yet. I usually interview people who have written books and usually academic books at this point. And that's important because I always have a huge body of references behind what they're writing. And that, to me, is important. And it's... Neuroscience is a rapidly changing field, so it is not surprising that what most of... I look at what I'm doing now, and I know that most of what I learned in medical school, a lot of it was wrong. That shouldn't surprise us. That's the way science works. So it's a balancing act between it hasn't been proven yet, it's a, it's an idea, and it's proven, but nobody's really caught on to it yet. I really try to stay in that sweet spot I get offers from subjects that are a little bit out there, and it's not that I'm dismissing them. I'm just like, I got enough material right here in this place that is close enough to the edge, but not at the very edge. That's enough. I only have a few guests that I interview, and a couple of them I've interviewed more than once that are that haven't written books. And in fact, I'll be interviewing this molecular biologist that I think should get a Nobel Prize someday, you can quote me on that, whose name is Seth Grant, and he'll be coming back on probably in August. He has made some, first of all, he worked with Eric, Eric Kandel, who won the Nobel Prize back in 2004. He's a fairly well-known neuroscientist. He worked in, with him as a postdoc creating transgenic mice. And so he studies, basically these genes that we share with mice that are related to things like schizophrenia and autism and they can tweak these genes they can put the gene that may, that's associated with the disease and in people into the mice and see how it messes up their learning just like it messes up human learning and so that's pretty wild stuff and he's discovered that the synapse for example you probably learned about the synapse that's the where the neurons come together we get this impression in school that the synapse is the synapse is the synapse. He actually discovered that the synapse is much more complex than we ever imagined. So that's an example and it might not seem important on the surface, except like his total rationale for studying it is that he, he hopes to figure out schizophrenia someday. That's his underlying motive. He started out, as a medical student who was interested in mental illness and ended up becoming a molecular biologist because he felt like that was going to be a key to the future.
1: I know all your guests have a lot to contribute to our knowledge of the brain, but I'm particularly interested in some of the things that you have probably drawn either from your own studies or your discussions with them. If I'm not mistaken, I think somewhere you've indicated that much of what the brain does is unconscious.
0: And that is not, that's not controversial. <laughs> okay, that's not controversial. Well, Although the thing that's interesting about it is that the way that some of it was discovered is interesting. They were There's one particular researcher whose name is Stanislav Dehaan. And he's written several wonderful books. And the last one was about learning. He he's known for the global workspace, the neuronal global workspace theory of consciousness, which is one of the main ones you'll hear about. He was trying to figure out, you know, what, how can we tell from the signals in the brain when somebody is actually conscious of something? Working from vision, in other words, showing them something. What's the difference between when they see it and when they don't, because there are times when you can, a a visual signal can be going to some visual parts of the cortex without you having any awareness of it. And so what's the difference? And one of the strange things that he discovered was things that have been assumed to be conscious, a lot of things that are assumed to be conscious are not conscious. For example, a lot of visual processing is not conscious. So. That's part of the evidence I base for the fact that I say most things are unconscious. It's not that it's not in the sense of everything's down there in some kind of Freudian place. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that your brain is just doing an awful lot of work that you don't have any need to know about. And Michael Graziano is one of my favorite guests. He says that. The brain just gives us a stick figure a, approximation of what's going on. It tells us what we need to know. We don't need to know how it's doing it, right? So that's why a of feels like it. It feels like consciousness is like coming from nowhere, right? Because you don't need to have any awareness of the processes, there's things you do need to know. You need to know where your body is, what's going on in the outside world, but there's a lot of stuff that you don't need to know. And if you think about when you learn something like how to drive, you remember how hard it was when you had to think about all the parts. Mm. And we don't even remember learning how to walk, but I'm sure that was equally difficult. So getting stuff over to where it's not conscious is actually an efficiency thing because we know that the spotlight of consciousness so to speak is actually quite narrow so it's a, an advantage to us that most of what our brain does is unconscious i don't think of it as a glitch think of it as a feature
1: so how much control do we have over things and in other words
0: well uh... yeah it's not implying that we because these things are unconscious we don't have control okay that's a misunderstanding we don't have control over certain things, like say sensory things, like you can't not see a, a visual a visual illusion. Even if it is an illusion, there's all these visual illusions because vision's been the most studied. Even once something's an illusion, say that one, I don't remember the name of it, Where it flips back and forth between looking like a rabbit and looking, what's the other thing it looks like? Or nectar's cube, the one that goes back and forth between right. looking, you can know it but you can't make it not do it because that's because that part of visual processing you don't control. There are things you can do to get around it. So some things obviously at the sensory level, we can't control. But as far as behavior goes, I'm going to have a guest about this coming up really soon that has some really interesting ideas about this. But the way I look at it is, Anything I do that's automatic, that's a habit, it's become a habit because I made a conscious decision to do it, okay? So I feel that I'm responsible for the things I did to make it a habit. That's the way I look at it. It's not like habits just pop out of nowhere. You get to choose what you focus on, what you choose what you learn to do that becomes automated. And you can still choose, even though you know how to drive a car, you can choose not to do it. So I don't think it's any threat at all to our free will, so to speak. I know there are neuroscientists that think free will is an illusion, but I don't fall into that category. Even though I know that most of what the brain does is unconscious, I don't think that means we don't have free will.
1: So you create the habits and then at some point they become automatic.
0: And you can still... You, most of the time you can, it's funny because there's things that people do that if they start paying attention to it, it messes it up. If you're a golfer and you put, think too much about how you putt, you can't putt. But then there's other things that if you choose to pay attention, for example, mindfulness practice is based on this, that you could start paying attention to the things that you don't normally pay attention to. And there, there seems to be some benefits to that especially for dealing with things like anxiety so there's when I say things are unconscious I think we need to think of it as being mm, let's think that there's probably at least three categories the stuff you can never get access to because there's no way for your conscious to access it the stuff that has become automated because you learned how to do it so you can now get to it Actually, that's only two categories, but the tricky part is that some things that people think they have access to, they probably don't have access to. For example, the idea that you're going to figure out what's really going on by introspection. One of my favorite guests said that's like using, doing that to figure out consciousness is talking to a con man, and because of other things that i've learned such as how easy it is to install false memories and how unreliable memory is in general i'm a little leery of the idea that we're going to figure out by by too much introspection figure out our solve our problems that way Whereas, say, cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, has a really good evidence base that it's effective, but it's not based on any kind of psychoanalysis kind of approach. It's really based on the idea that you look at the world and you reframe it and you say, that's the way it is, but I can choose to respond to it and have control over how I respond to it. So cognitive behavioral therapy is really about saying you do have control, even though you may not control control the in a way that's con, it's like mindfulness, you may not control the emotion that seems to bubble out of nowhere, but you do have a choice about how you respond to it. Mm-hmm. And that to me, that's the most important piece of control that we need, right, is that we can choose how to respond to what happens to us out in the world or how our emotions bubble up. We can choose, hey, I'm going to punch that guy in the face no matter what the consequences, or we can choose not to. <laughs>
1: okay that that clarifies a lot of things but you mentioned something that was kind of interesting the area of memory obviously at my age I have many peers who are concerned about where their memories are going and what we can do to improve that how is it that some people's memories are better than others and is there Uh, assuming that we're not in a dementia category like that, are are there things we can do to improve memory?
0: Yeah, I don't think we have real good answers yet. We know some things are just part of the process. For example, long-term memories are better preserved than short-term memory. What's not clear at this point is, you know, exactly what we should do about the problems with short-term memory. Some of it seems to be, there's a there's a lot of leading edge research on this and I'm not up to date on the exact, uh, where things stand, but I do know that some of it has to do with the fact that we the signals are noisier than they used to be, but also the way we process information changes. Think about how when you're young, of course, it was so easy to remember everything, but then everything was new, right? And you were just like a sponge. Now, one of the things that happens to most of us is we're pretty selective. If we're not really paying attention, right, it just never even gets in there. And so that's one thing that we do. We can say, hey, I need to focus if I really want to remember something it's not just going to happen I need to focus I need to and that you it's like when you're a kid it seems like you could remember stuff without trying and that's not true anymore now there's new ideas about different kinds of electrical stimulation and stuff but that it's too early to know whether any of that's going to pan out but from a practical standpoint the first thing is to ask yourself what are oh sorry I'm going to interrupt myself to say one other thing before i try to solve the problem mm-hmm. i'm sure you've noticed this as a as an older person you it's not that you don't remember a conversation right but what you remember is the gist of the conversation you may not be able to tell every little bit and when somebody goes back and start doing the every little bit then you go oh yeah but if you if i was, if you i asked you to give it to me it would be hard this was actually a challenge for me when i was a fellow at the age of 59 Because I had no trouble remembering my patients' conversations, but I didn't listen to them in the same detailed way I would as a young person. And so if my supervisor said, what about blah, 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 and I'd be going, I don't remember. But but I still got the gist. And that's because, and we associate the things we hear with what we already know. So the more we know, we also, and this is how our brain works in general. It says, is this piece of information new? How does this piece of information apply to what I already know? If we think that piece of information is not new and does not apply to anything we already know at our age, we tend to just really not remember it, as opposed to a younger person who's still putting all the pieces in. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: So, you know, some researchers, and so we have the ability to learn There are certain things we don't lose, like we can learn more words and more ideas. That's not a problem. It takes us a little bit, maybe a little bit longer, but we can continue to learn new things. That's the great thing. But the way we learn them is different because we're putting them with what we already know. That means that if the thing doesn't seem to have an obvious connection to what you already know, you might need to work at, if if it's something you really want to remember, For me, I've like never been good with names. And when I was younger, I didn't care. Was that? I just heard a noise, but I don't think it was me. Anyway, I've never been good with names. I didn't care when I was younger. Now I care. But it's still, it's not really harder. What's really weird is when I forget the name of someone I already know. (laughs) Have (laughs) you had that experience? And there's actually a reason for that. Physiological reason. Memories relate to having all these interconnections so the better the interconnections are the solider the memory so a name is a really good example of a tricky thing because it it doesn't have very may not have very many connections that makes it easy to forget and that of course was the idea behind all those weird new mnemonics like imagine the person with the big hat on and all that stuff i've never found that helpful but Bottom line is if you're having trouble mem- remembering something and you really want to remember it, there's two things that you can do. One is make sure that you're giving it your undivided attention. Don't try to just do, you know, multitasking, forget that. Give it your undivided attention and try to connect it with things, consciously connect it with things you already know so as to help you to remember it, to give it more connecting points because when you remember something it starts from a piece that then flowers into all the other connections and so the more connections you've got the better you have to chance you have to remember it that's the most practical thing but also remember that it's a trade-off you may not remember all those little details that you could remember when you were younger but you also have a world of experience And you do have different skills and don't feel bad about the skills you do have. You can put those things that you learn together with the things you already know. You're probably better at getting the gist of an argument than a younger person is, even if you aren't as good at remembering all the details.
1: That's reassuring. Uh also answers a number of questions for me. I know that uh, we live in in an apartment building and we got a new neighbor who's going to be there. I will remember his or her name, but uh, if one of the neighbors says, here's my cousin from Indiana, this is, I haven't seen her since she last visited here 15 years ago. I can't, uh, I can't tell you what her name is because I think I involuntarily or voluntarily didn't process it because I figure if if she stays away for another 10 (laughs) years, that'll be the next time I need to know it. And also, as you were talking, I thought about one of the things that Made me think I was a genius when I was very young. as I remember my parents apparently had, had, there was a phone number of some business that they had to call. And I remembered the phone number at a very young age, but it was the only phone number I had committed to memory. <laughs> I didn't have any others, let alone the fact that I think phone numbers were like only six digits long at that point. But even if I remembered everybody's phone number that I have to deal with now, it There would probably be no more room for anything else, memory-wise. That's really helpful information to know. There's one other topic I want to get to before we find out a little more about how we reach you, get your book, and so on. I know at some point you've mentioned in your work that we're wired to be social. Tell me a little bit about the brain and being social.
0: Okay, that is not that's not a new idea at all, but In fact, there's theories about human evolution that are based on the idea that we got big brains in order to deal with being social, (laughs) That's that they go together. And there's a whole branch of neuroscience called social neuroscience, which I haven't really been able to truly get into. But the bottom line is that most of us there's always exceptions. But for most of us, being social is, is, we're wired for it. It's most obvious when we're teenagers and we think everyone is looking at us, which thankfully we outgrow. And I think the COVID pandemic brought that home because so many people suffered anxiety and depression and all kinds of problems from being cut off from social interaction. I was so grateful to have a job where I still went to the hospital and saw patients. But so I think maybe COVID made people more aware of it, but also aware that some of their social connections they could do without. (laughs) It really made you stop and think, is this a thing I need or not? That person really wasn't nurturing my life. And this person I really miss. So I think there was a lot of lessons in there. But the reason it matters is that it helps us to understand a lot of behavior, a lot of things that people do. For example, going along with the crowd and why people tend to all those weird psychological experiments that show that people will even give the wrong answer if the person's next to them is giving the wrong answer, even though they can see the right answer, because You can imagine, and we know this because there have been cultures like this in recorded history. If you didn't stick right in the norm, you don't want to be the lone wolf because you're going to. So the tendency to want to be like other people and be fit in and all that, that's part of our wiring. Along with our tendency to be attracted to people that we think are like us which of course has the flip side of being suspicious and reluctant to deal with people we think are different from us. And I think that's important because we need to understand that those are our real tendencies and we can overcome them. But then this is going to be a good example of a place when we have to use our conscious part, (laughs) right? You know how everybody's talking about implicit bias these days? I think it's getting exaggerated, but... It is true that we might have a tendency, we do have a tendency to automatically go to the person in the room that we feel is most like us. That's not evil. That's just how we are. So then maybe we have to say, hey, I'm going to make it a point to, when I go into a room, go talk to that person who looks different from me. It's okay. That doesn't feel comfortable, but do it anyway.
1: Great advice. There's so much we can learn from you. So I And we don't have a lot of time to learn it here, but how can we, number one, follow you, get in touch with you, listen to your podcast, get your book, and so on?
0: Everything is at brainsciencepodcast.com. But I want to mention that you can listen to Brain Science wherever you listen to audio, even on YouTube. I have an amazing number of people who listen to my audio podcast on YouTube. It's very weird. (laughs) And my book is also available on Amazon and anywhere you buy books, Are You Sure? The Unconscious Origins of Certainty. And I also have a free newsletter and it just tells you once a month when the show's coming out so that you don't miss it. If you sign up for it, you can get a free handout called Five Things You Need to Know About Your Brain. And you can get that at my website or by texting brain science all one word to 55444 that's brain science all one word to 55444 but if you're not a texture, just go to my website and look for the link brainsciencepodcast.com
1: and we will have all this in the show notes so people will have links to all this I can attest to the fact that the five things to know about your brain are very enlightening very easy to read very user friendly and uh, again i've heard various podcasts of yours you're a great interviewer and every e- even though you're having some very high powered scientists it's the podcasts are understandable and useful and we're really appreciative of the fact that you've shared this time with us today looking forward to hearing more from you, to seeing more from you. And I do encourage my listeners to follow, take advantage of the free offer. And uh, we only got a little smidgen today of what you can learn about how the brain works from real experts. So Ginger, thanks very much for being on Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you.
0: Thanks, Ron. I really enjoyed it.
1: Great. So that brings to the close another episode of Rejuvenaging with Dr. Ron Kaiser, our special guest, Dr. Ginger Campbell. And hope that you enjoyed this enough and learned enough from it that you will tell your friends about it, download the episode, rate it, review it, and then be back next week for another really interesting guest. Until then, Looking forward to your using your brain maybe a little differently than you might have thought, or at least appreciating all the things that it does for you. And then in the meantime, stay positive, and stay safe, and we'll see you next week.